0: Greetings, everyone. This is Peter DeArger with episode 16 of the podcast Y2K and Autobiography. The title this time is In Closing, because we've come to the end of this. Originally, my plan was to put about 10 or 12 of the podcasts together and then pretty much wrap up. I figured that we had more than enough information for 10 or 12 episodes, different enough from each other to make it interesting and to cover various aspects of Y2K. We're on number 16. We found a couple of other topics that were of interest, and we snuck those in. So it's gone on a little bit longer than I'd planned. But it must come to an end. Why? Well, because it was a coverage of an event, something that happened through the 1990s, and sooner or later we'd run out of things to talk about. We could continue. There are other things we could discuss. We could go through every single magazine that was published. We could do a timeline of the types of articles that were being published and who was publishing them, etc., etc. We could look at particular industries, the power industry. We could look at the airline industry, which would have been interesting if you were in the airline industry. Some of the industries that we, look, we could have looked at, airlines, for example, the story would have been we looked and we didn't find much The airline industries did find one or two problems. We know of specifically one that required Boeing to remove some computer boards from an airline so that the navigation system would know that the map it was looking at was looking at the right date, that it wasn't an out-of-date navigation map. If that had been left in, there would have been a little red light in the cockpit on January first, 2000, And the little red light would have instructed the pilot to, well, sorry, you can't take off until that little red light is out. So we fixed that. But to devote an entire hour to that discussion would be, in a word, boring. Even to me, a little bit. We like drama, don't we? And if we're not going to find anything, that, well, in a way, it's boring. In another way, it's, uh, well, it's proof that we needed to look in a way, because until we looked, well, we didn't know. And that was the key. In many of these stories, people didn't know the answer as to whether or not Y2K posed them a problem. Now, right at the beginning, I promised that I would make this as objective as possible. And I did that, I believe, at least in the interviews that we did. So the reason we did the interviews was to get other voices, not just mine talking about my perspective, but the other voices of people that actually worked in the trenches. We added on 25 interviews, 15 podcasts so far, 25 interviews that are in the on-demand area. Those were done deliberately to get different perspectives. And those are more fascinating, frankly, than my sessions. People may differ on that, but that's my take. I'm tired of hearing my own voice. How can we come, summarize all of this? Well, first off, Y2K was an issue. It needed to be solved. It needed to be fixed. There was a problem in the code, and when we looked and when we tested, code broke. It stopped doing what it was designed to do. So we knew there was a problem. That was easy to demonstrate. When I stand in front of an audience and tell you to turn your computer on, change the date power off the computer, I'll get back to you in 10 minutes, and when I do, your computer is acting funny, that's proof enough for anyone who is in that audience, at least. How big a problem was it? Well, we'll never know, will we? We'll never know what would have happened if we hadn't done anything, and that's the challenge. We only have one timeline that we're on, and in this one, we beat the drums loudly and consistently and continually until everybody basically told us to shut up, and if the only way to get us to shut up was to look at their systems, that's what they did. So we made a lot of noise, so we won't really know how bad it could have been. Now, we have some clues. When a bank goes into their system and creates a test, And everything goes belly up in the matter of a couple of minutes, and then the computer shuts down, and they scratch their head and say, if that happened on the day, it would take us a couple of months to fix. We know that we've avoided a bit of a disaster for that bank and every one of their clients. We know that if we hadn't fixed the problems, there would have been trouble. But there's another question we can ask. Was it necessary to beat the drum? Well, we know part of the answer to that. And part of the answer is yes, it was. Here's the proof that I'll draw on. We used something called sliding windows or windowing. And basically, it was a technique to look at the data you were getting and make some assumptions about it. One of the assumptions, one of the slides was really, really easy. If the date you're looking at was less than 20 then you can make the assumption that that date refers to 2019 or 2018. That's the assumption you were making. You told the computer how to do that. So you put that into the code, and you have now fixed your year 2000 problem for 20 years. Now, when you're doing that, you know that when it's 21 or when it gets to 20, that you're going to have to fix that code. After all, that's why you're doing it. So you know it's a stopgap measure. You know it's a temporary fix. So you put it in. And you tell your boss, you tell your organization, we have fixed this problem. Well, fair enough. You have. For 20 years. No one was beating the drum about, you need to go back and make sure you've got that fixed for January the 1st, 2020. You know that, right? No one was writing articles. No one was getting interviewed about that from the year 2000, 2001, and 2002. No one was getting in your face to remind you that this needs to be fixed. So no one is beating the drum. And on January first, 2020, all around the world, we have these little computer problems. Because it's finally 2020, and that temporary fix that we put in, because no one has been shaming you into fixing it, broke. And on January 1st, 2020, these companies had problems. Train companies in Europe. Parking meter companies in New York City. Register companies, cash register companies in Poland. No drum beating, and problems occurred. So when we get asked, was it necessary to beat the drum, I'm going to be very opinionated on this and say if we hadn't beaten the drum, most organizations would not have done anything. And the year 2000 would have been more filled with problems than we could imagine. We did beat the drum. They did fix it. There was no consternation on January the 1st, 2000. Next question we might answer is well you beat the drum too loudly. <laughs> okay. Uh hang me. We beat it too loudly. It was hyped. It was overspoken. You were tired of it. Shut up Peter we get the message. I get it. Here's the challenge. Where's the sweet spot? At what point do we say to ourselves we've beaten the drum enough we don't have to do it anymore? Or do we keep beating the drum right till the very end in the hopes that maybe, just maybe, the one person who hadn't gotten the message yet after a decade of drum-beating would finally have gotten the message? If you can answer those, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Din. Because I have no idea how to answer or to determine when it's enough drum-beating to get the message through. We could look at real-life problems that we're encountering today. How much drum-beating does Greta Thunberg have to do to get us to pay attention to climate change? How much drum-beating is necessary to get us to start paying attention to plastic pollution in our oceans? How much drum-beating is necessary to get us to understand that the wealth and in the world is getting out of hand? Last time it did that, we invented something called a guillotine. All of these problems require drum-beating. It requires people becoming aware of the problem and all of them, well, they won't get solved until the drum beating reaches the sweet spot and then bypasses it. it. goes beyond that until we're tired of hearing from Greta and anyone else talking about climate change. We're not there yet, Greta. Keep talking. Keep beating your drum. After a project like Y2K, it's important to ask, what did we learn? Now, I'm a bit of a cynic, and I believe we learned very, very much at all. The reality is we did. That's one of the reasons why we did the interviews. I asked that question of every single interview we did. What did we learn? And we ran the gamut of answers. We had people like myself who were cynical say we didn't learn anything. We're making the same mistakes today as we made back then. There's a recent example out of the UK. It's bizarre. And when I heard it, I just shook my head. I can't believe it happened. Turns out that in the U.K. There's, they were storing information about COVID cases in an Excel spreadsheet. Nothing fundamentally wrong with that. Excel's spreadsheets are a really good tool for sorting and manipulating data. It's visual. It's easy to understand. And they went ahead and stored the information in an Excel. And lo and behold, one day they realized that they're missing about 1,600 data records. And they've termed it a technical glitch, which just rubs me the wrong way, because it's not a technical glitch. Here's what they did, whoever the programmer or user, whoever they were. This is what they did. They brought up an Excel spreadsheet, and as when they have a COVID case that's been identified, they create a column for that COVID case. And when another one comes along they create another column and another column and another column excel has a relatively small number of columns before there are no more columns fire up spreadsheet take a look at it go to the very very right of your screen how many columns are there count them and that's what the design was that's how they were storing covid data and when they ran out of columns well they didn't realize it (laughs) They didn't have a count somewhere to warn them. You're running out of data space. And the data, the new data, just started to drop off the edge. In other words, it wasn't being collected properly. One day they woke up and they figured out they lost 1,600 data records. Which is important because you're setting policy, you're setting health policy based upon the number of cases and the rate of change and all that good stuff. So one problem, though, if you're using a tool that doesn't have enough space to store all the data actually out there, you're going to have a problem. And those words should echo in your head. If you're using a tool that doesn't have enough space to store all the data, that's a Y2K problem. Category. It had nothing to do with dates. It had to do with too much data going into too few fields. So when we ask, did we learn anything? Well, maybe we did as a, an industry, but the individual putting that data together into an Excel spreadsheet didn't learn anything from Y2K. Maybe they weren't even born when Y2K was being discussed back in the day. We could have learned stuff. We learned about project management. We got that better. We, at the beginning... We all thought that we'd really have a problem because IT never delivers stuff on time. We don't know what deadlines are. We consider them more to be guidelines than hard deadlines. And until Y2K came along, we weren't really very good at meeting deadlines. With good project management skills, we got better at that. With project management offices, being put together to manage all the different Y2K projects within an organization, we have got very good at it. Irene Deck is a good example at Prudential. So we did learn some stuff. And it would be too cynical of me to say that we didn't. But there was so much more that we could have learned. And we just never got around to it. Or if we did, we forgot it really quickly. Which is unfortunate because hopefully we'll never see a something like Y2K again. And that's me being a little bit naive. We have more Y2K stuff coming along. Just as in 2020, we had a 20-year windowing technique that failed, we're going to have similar problems in the following dates. Here's prediction time, right? 2025, we're going to have more of these windowing problems. 2030, didn't hear that being used a lot, but I can't imagine it wasn't used at all. 2050, I heard a lot of organizations using the year 50 as a window for solving the year 2000 problem temporarily for 50 years. And I can guarantee you that in the year 2050, Y2K will resurface again because we never really fixed it. We postponed it. We kicked the proverbial can down the road. And by the time we get to 2050, most of the people involved, likely myself, will no longer be around. I'm 65, 2050s. what? Do the math, Peter. Another 30 years, I'll be 95, or maybe not. <laughs> All I know is that if I am around, I'm not going to be talking about it, because I'm done with Y2K pretty much after this uh, podcast. Is complete. Some news on the horizon. There will be more Y2K in your life. CNN has a Y2K series of about six to eight installments. I'm not sure exactly sure how many, but the number six and the number eight has been mentioned several times in our discussions. This was supposed to have aired in July, and then it was pushed to August, and then it was pushed to September, and it was supposed to show in October. October. And for some reason, the airwaves have been consumed with more news that would allow something like Y2K to sneak in. Uh, My guess, you're not going to see the CNN special on Y2K until possibly, let's see now, I'll make a guess, February of next year? Maybe by then the dust will have settled on at least one of the issues that are causing delays. The other item that uh, is newsworthy is that New York Times is in discussion for putting a documentary together on Y2K, sort of on the same veins as this podcast series has been. What they're trying to do is tell the real story of what happened, not just the hype and the craziness and the, the gold hoarding and building supplies and prepping and the, the end of the world as we know it, but What really happened? How big a problem was it? And I don't know if they'll be more or less objective than I've been. I hope that both documentaries cover this the way it should be covered, because it was an unusual period in time. For the first time, many people really began to understand how much we rely on computers. When something threatens what we've taken for granted, then we start worrying about it which is what Y2K was all about. We took computers for granted. We didn't necessarily understand exactly how they worked, but we knew we were using them, which is why Y2K was so difficult to solve. Going to senior management and telling them the thing that drives your business every single day will likely, most likely, have problems very, very shortly and will cost a whole bunch of money, wheelbarrows full of it, wasn't good news. It wasn't well received. So, there's another bit of news. Uh, James Lauber, uh, the guest uh, podcaster I guess, that we've had with us for the last couple of episodes, has come up with a project for himself, a podcast. Here's some info on James's uh, podcast. The title is Project Communicast. That's spelled P-R-O hyphen J-E-C-T CommuniCast, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-S-T. First episode he's planning is Friday, November the 13th, Spooky, 2020. He says the irony is delicious. The format will be two hosts in conversation with guest spots and media inserts. The release schedule will start off as monthly on the second Friday of each month, with solid plans to increase frequency as production normalizes. He's starting on a new adventure, I wish him all the best in the world. His focus is going to be on the critical impact of communication skills on project outcomes and change management. He will also be adding feature segments on up-and-coming technologies, as well as guest contributors, which may take us off in interesting directions for portions of some episodes. He'll be putting it up on Google Play, Apple Store, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. I wish him all the best. If you want more information, then send me a note, pediogre at com. You've heard that often enough. And I'll make sure that there's a simple PDF that I'll send out to you in support of his podcast. My next project is going to be much more enjoyable. I have two grandkids, Ronan and Scarlett. And that's going to be my next project for a while. So... A quick recap on where to find things for Y2K and autobiography. The audio portion will remain on iTunes and Podbean. You can get it the same way you've been getting it before. Just do a Google on it and you can find it. It's easy enough. My email address is pdager at com. That's P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R at technobility, T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Dot com. Remember the origin of that uh, little URL. I was sitting in a cubicle one day, and one of my techie buddies were around the corner berating a user, calling the user a techno-peasant. And the w- thought that went through my mind is, they're not no techno-peasants, they're technobility. They will control and use the technology. So that's where that came from, technobility.com. Again, you can find me at that website as well, www.technobility.com. And the on-demand portion, all the interviews, there are more interviews than there are episodes to this podcast, so if you want a little bit more Y2K, you can get your fix there. That's located at www.vimeo.com slash on-demand slash Y2K. If you subscribed and were paying There won't be much new stuff. I'd suggest you cancel the PayPal subscription that you've got set up and just make sure that you are on the mailing list for notifications for new stuff being entered into the interview area, into the on-demand area. Whenever I put something into the on-demand, if you're subscribed to the notifications, you'll be told. There's at least one more interview going up. Possibly another one that's in the works, but I don't know if we'll finish that one. Uh, And that's on the part of the person being interviewed, not myself. There may be a few others. It wouldn't surprise me if, as this awareness of the podcast grows, and it will continue to grow, that some people will come in and say, I have something to say about Y2K because I was involved and I have a story to tell. And if that happens, there'll be a new interview. But like I said, if you've been supporting us, there won't be any more new audio ones unless something strange happens, and I'll feel free to add a new audio to the podcast if something's worthwhile reporting. So again, thanks for all the support, and those were the details. The most important one is vimeo.com slash on slash y2k for all the interviews that maybe you haven't heard yet. Thank you for paying attention. Thank you for tuning in from time to time. Thank you for arguing about it. And for those of you who have supported this, thank you for your support. Keep spreading the word. The beauty about a project like this is that you can come into it for the first time three years from now and still get the benefit, because we're talking about history, not current affairs. So take care, folks. Be good. Be safe out there. And we will get through everything that's still to come. This is Peter DeAuger, signing off.